Welcome to the Better Birth Podcast. My name's Erin and I'm a hypnobirthing and antenatal instructor, birth activist and all-round birth geek. In this podcast, I chat to experts in the field of pregnancy and birth, debunking myths around birth, diving into the research around maternity care and exploring what is it that means you're more likely to have a positive birthing experience. If you enjoy this podcast, do feel free to buy me a coffee and fund my caffeine habit. Link to my buy me a coffee page is in the podcast info. Enjoy this episode. This episode is a recording of an Instagram live that myself and midwife Tasneem recorded a while back. It's discussing the changes in the NICE guidelines around induction, um, and this is still a really topical and important um, subject, so I hope that this episode helps inform people around induction and their choices. I do have to apologise in advance, there is a tiny gate crasher, my son did um, interrupt us quite a lot near the end, I started demanding my attention, so um, uh, apologies for the... uh, interruptions but I do hope that this episode is informative and interesting for all of you um, and really does shine a light on induction of labour. I um the reason I had decided to um scout you for this particular because we were thinking about induction is because of how in recent months when the guidelines have been changing I think the way that you've been trying to explain using your posts has been really Mm. as a midwife to see someone doing that who isn't a healthcare professional in that they're not a midwife or a doctor is really Mm. amazing because I think sometimes we can really try and be looking for an answer but it's really misconstrued amongst everything so what you've done is you've taken these guidelines and you've actually broken them down in a way that is accessible to a lot Mm. of people whereas if like as a layperson reading the nice guidance you read them and you freak out don't you yeah you do yeah I had a client who recently contacted me because she was so worried about going post dates and she actually ended up having her baby before her her sort of 42 weeks came up and she sent me the nice guidance um on Friday and said have you seen this if this was in circulation when I gave birth I would have been induced and I think the worry for me and probably the same for you is how do we get the raise awareness of the fact that when it comes to guidance it's guidance isn't it it's not I reckon it's not it's not set in stone Mm -hmm. and a lot of it is very much trying to understand the reason behind um, the guidance being changed Mm -hmm. um, and we need to hopefully hopefully today we'll be sharing some um shedding some light on that yeah yeah I think uh, first off thank you for asking me to to do the live I really I'm flattered (laughs) um and um yeah you're right I think um it it is guidance it's recommendations um I think the the issue that I personally have with the guidelines is that there is a whole load of other evidence and conversation that can go around the induction of labour, which in, in in reality, and I mean, you'll probably be able to confirm this better than me, but in reality, you may not have time as a midwife to go through in detail at an antenatal appointment. There's lots of, you know, 
gu the guidelines are are kind of a, 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 a tick boxing exercise of, of categorizing types of women and, and assessing different degrees of risk and we need to be looking at people in in their individual circumstances and you know a, a, a lay person somebody who's not a medical professional who gets access to those nice guidelines for induction and reads through them may not necessarily understand that sometimes guidelines are not written using the latest research and yeah. they are not um they are not looking at you as an individual you may fit into a category um and and, and that's fine but that doesn't necessarily mean that that recommendation actually is 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 right for you and you need to look at your individual circumstances and i think that's very difficult as a for as a pregnant person to understand that there's a whole other conversation that goes around induction that you may not actually have with your with your midwife and knowing where to get that information and where to look and how to interpret that data and looking at stats for stillbirth for example mm -hmm. that can be really scary um, so how do you interpret that information in a way that you can make an informed decision, I think, is really important. And it's a bit of a vicious cycle as well, isn't it? Because the more you then push the induction recommendation and the more people start to um, take that on board and start, you know, moving forward with having inductions, mm -hmm. it then almost becomes this this mindset that our bodies can't birth. So, like, you get to that point where you get to your due date and um, a lot of people then think, okay, I'm not, it's not going to happen so I need this induction because my body just cannot labour yeah. um, and even you know when you see the see when someone has gone through an induction process and they get to that right very end bit of the process and nothing has happened for them mm. it's like well let's do an emergency cesarean because there's nothing more we can do and mm. that's really shocking because actually when you look at it and the more you look into physiological birth and the more we try to understand what our body's doing, the more we actually realise how capable and amazing our body is in um, mm. both growing our baby during pregnancies um, and nourishing them. And then you go on to things like uh, birth. But then when we're interrupting this process with hormones and chemicals in our body which yes sometimes and there are and um, there yeah. are definitely situations where an induction of labor would benefit a yeah. a, a birther but what we have is if everyone thinks that they need an induction because their body's going to fail them you then have all these hormones that are then creating potential problems for after the baby's born and i think that's also yeah. a conversation that we don't have so it's yeah. all fair and well in the nice guidance for me to say um you read them, but nothing tells you about what the long-term consequences are. And that's something for me, yeah. as someone who did have an induction for the first, for the first time and had my son, mm. I had no idea about it. Even as a midwife, that yeah. evidence is rarely sort of put in front of your face to say, this is what we're doing. It's yeah. more a case of, it's almost like as if we're just slapping on a label on something. And like you said, that um, we are analysing degrees of risk to then give someone like a okay so it's almost like pulling it out of the hat so this category of risk right let's give you this so this is what's going to happen at four, 39 yeah. weeks or 40 weeks for you mm. and it's um something about your post had really uh, popped to me because you had not only just broken it down to things like race socioeconomic groups but you'd also sort of uh, explained it how 
I can't find your post right now and it's completely gone out of my mind. But it's the way you'd explained it. Actually, there are some things within the NICE guidance which is good because they have updated some some of their um, recommendation. And the whole thing that we were worried about when we first came, um, when it first saw that the consultation came public early on in the year, we did get really worried thinking, why are women of colour? being yeah. targeted as let's always induce you all at 39 weeks because end your pregnancies mm -hmm. before we have um, stillborn babies because you're more at risk. Um, and it was what you had said in the post, and that's what's coming back now, um, about how the stillbirth rate, when you actually look at the exact statistics or you look at research that's more updated, the stillbirth rate is, isn't as great as we are all panicking about. I think... I think there's two points to raise with that. One is that actually we need to be looking at the relative risk when we look at stillbirth rates because people will say that the risk of the risk of stillbirth increases the longer your pregnancy get yeah. go, goes on for. And yes, that there there is some research studies, research studies that do show that. There are also some research studies that show that actually it starts to drop again after 42 weeks. Um, so that's something to bear in mind. But the actual risk, the actual percentage risk is very, very low for stillbirth. So saying that you are at risk and that the risk increases, yes, that's true. But what is the actual risk? Because some of the research shows that we would have to induce, I think, 400 and... Oh, God, I can't remember the number it's four, now. It was 400 it's four, something women, yeah. I remember 435, I think, or 436 mm -hmm. women um, in order to prevent one stillbirth which means that you are, you are um, potentially inducing over 400 women unnecessarily. potentially unnecessarily to prevent that one stillbirth. And yes, it is important to prevent that one stillbirth, but we need to work to reduce that number of people who are being in, uh, induced unnecessarily because there are long-term risks. There's and that doesn't get, doesn't get discussed. You know, it, the, the, the Hannah Darling um, research piece that I've shared previously mm -hmm. they looked at over 20,000 I think it's 20,000 births um, and they followed those babies over the course of 16 years so they've looked at short and long-term effects of induction of labor and they found that for the mothers there was an increase in um, c-section episiotomy, instrumental delivery, all sorts of um, potentially negative side effects of induction for the mothers. But for the babies themselves, short term, there was an increase in admission to intensive care um, for um, breathing difficulties um, and long term um, an increase in things like ear, throat and nose infections for children who were induced. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't induce, no. but I'm saying that we need to balance, we need to weigh the risks long term for both mother and baby with the risks of waiting um, and, and prolonging your pregnancy. And one of the issues I have with the current guidelines, I mean, it's fantastic. Yes, they did change some of the guidelines for um, for recommendations around, say, people who, who are black or, or ethnic um, minoritized. But there is a guideline in there to say that everyone should be offered a sweep from 39 weeks. That terrifies mm -hmm. me because I know, and I know lots of people will say that a sweep is not a form of induction. It is because it is. you are trying to bring on labor before you've spontaneously gone into labor. So it is a form of induction and there are risks with the sweep. Yeah, and again, 
I argue, will those risks always be presented to somebody who's offered a sweep? No, I don't think they always are. I know from a, for a fact from being pregnant three times that the risks were not discussed with me for a sweep. Um, so, and, and that's, again, that's, that's an issue because if we're going to be offering everybody at 39 weeks a sweep, um, they need to know the risks. And, and statistically, the, major, the vast majority of people are going to end up being offered a sweep because most people will go over 40 weeks. Yeah. And, it's, so it's, and it's, it's, a, it's a huge problem. It's that also that thing is that you could you could explain a membrane sweep and I've in practice I've had when a um, membrane sweep is offered it's almost like a it's offered as a not a quick fix as such but it's almost like that isn't it that have the induction um have the membrane sweep um it may help you but actually when you even look at the the statistics and the the research behind membrane sweeps they're not they're not fantastic either and the worrying thing is is that also by doing this as a national guidance more and more birthing people are going to see this as I need that then don't I because if someone you know a clinical body like NICE are recommending this the for me the, the the thing it always starts with sweeps and it almost sort of then becomes it becomes like we always talk about when we talk about things like cascade of intervention is that you find that one thing will then lead to another because if you ha when you have the sweeps you then get to a point where you are um if the sweep hasn't changed in its findings in its conclusion if you've had a couple then you get to the point where an induction of labor is offered and then at that point you then think okay well the sweeps haven't worked maybe this will and it's almost a mindset isn't it unless you actually yeah. are aware of the whole the, the bigger picture you will yeah. likely move forward and I know I did I've, I've, I've done the same thing because I even though I had the knowledge of being a midwife this this kind of knowledge it's not something that is and I've noticed it um, going into the sort of private work is that it takes time it takes a lot of time to find this research to find the evidence yeah. to be able to then disseminate it in ways it takes it time it takes time from you from your family and mm. it's hard work it's not just as easy as saying okay this is the last guidance and this is what it recommends and this is what you should do this is what you shouldn't do it's so yeah. much more than that um mm. i think for me when i'd seen your post being put up i thought blood I almost thought bloody hell I thought she's on it because I haven't even had a chance to read the whole document let alone break it mm -hmm. up into its garments so you know what hat off to you because I think and that's like, I, I do I share your page because I think it's so important that people have this awareness that it's not just black and white and I think that's where as birth workers as midwives as doctors we do often go wrong because when I've had and I've had clients go for their appointments they're then being told it's things like um like low fluid index at going over your due date um, there's a lot of research to put out there that suggests that it can and um, it's likely that it's because physiologically the fluid isn't needed as much because the baby's getting ready for their first breath coming up mm -hmm. close to the, the day that they're, they're uh, going to be born and for that reason you then have uh, lower fluid index but then having a scan post 40 weeks I was induced for low fluid index but there was nothing wrong with my scan and I said yeah. that because if I just waited 
maybe it would have been a completely different experience because mm. for me at a personal level and I always know we always say we shouldn't like push our own experiences onto like you know the bit from my own personal experience which then drove my passion to learning about well hang on this is all fair and well but what what are the alternatives and I think that's what I when I started searching and I was introduced and I ended up having such a time where I couldn't I initially couldn't get myself matched on that then led me to being completely sleep deprived completely mm-hmm. out of it and I was so I was depressed I was completely I was just going round and round and round in you know in my own little bubble trying to make things mm-hmm. right because I thought I was doing wrong because then I get, again I was looking at guidance and guidance wasn't what my son was doing and I thought right there's mm-hmm. something wrong um I'm doing something wrong and I look back now and I think he was just typical newborn behavior and you know, but things like that are kind of stem from even now my birth experience I don't think I fully mm-hmm. processed it and I don't mm-hmm. really want to have any more children because I don't want to go through what I did with him which yeah. is really it's really shocking when I actually say mm-hmm. that to a real world of people when I'm doing it mm-hmm. and I say honestly because I know all of this now and it probably would be different but I feel like I can't take that risk same way yeah. someone would, would be happy to take the risk of an addiction or something like that so as a woman, they can't take that risk again because they don't know where it could lead. Because yeah. we're so programmed to believe that we can't birth. This is this is the thing. It's that programming. And I, I, when I was teaching um, and somebody yesterday, and we were talking about the importance of practice with the hypnobirthing, um, and it is so heavily embedded in our subconscious. All of us. And even people who know, like me, you and I know the importance of hormones. We know that birth works when we're left alone, but it is so heavily, deeply ingrained in us. Even I have a voice in the back of my head sometimes when I have a client saying something to me. I'm like, oh, maybe or I'm saying this and I know (laughs) I know what I'm saying is right. But there's a little voice in the back of my head saying, but what if? But what What if? if? And I have to kind of consciously switch it off because that those neural pathways in, in, in everybody's brain are so strong connecting birth with risk and birth with pain and birth with mm-hmm. trauma and birth is dangerous. And even as a birth worker who, who knows that birth works in the vast majority of times, I still have that niggling doubt in the back of my head. So to expect somebody who doesn't understand birth to be able to make decisions without having the information they need, of course they're going to go ahead with an induction because they don't have the information they need to make those informed decisions. And they have a very, very heavily, deeply embedded um, narrative in their subconscious that birth is dangerous. Um, And that's why it's so important that we we try and educate people as much as possible and, and try and give that information in a digestible way so that you can make those informed decisions. Because like I said before, a, a, you know, a 20 minute antenatal appointment, the midwives don't have time to go through that with you in detail. Mm. Um, even if they want to, because they are so hard pressed at the minute, they are understaffed, underfunded and overworked and they don't have that time. Um, so the more research you can do on your own, um, the better. Um, and it's finding good quality, unbiased sources of information that's really important because Googling stuff is just, you're just going to terrify yourself, to be honest, if you go and Google things. Um, so I direct Where everybody to post. I, I would say um, Dr. Sarah Wickham, 
port of call. Yeah, because she's fantastic. And she's just published a book, actually, um, night yesterday, night yeah, yeah. Um, on, on induction of labour. Hello. <laughs> Sorry, my son's going crashing. Um, so I recommend her. Um, Ames um, UK, their website is very, very good. They have loads of journal articles. They publish books, and all of their books are fantastic. Mm. Um, uh, Kemi Birthjoy Johnson oh, on yeah. Instagram. Oh, she's yeah. amazing and she I send is. everybody to her because she is a real advocate of physiological birth and she's a midwife and she's hugely experienced um I think those are my main ones I, I, I send people to um evidencebasedbirth.com oh yeah as a website um because it's an American website but they aggregate lots of different research um studies from around the world and they put it into a digestible digestible format for, for for anybody to understand it's um, and breaking even if, it down isn't it they break it down so that you understand the risk the benefit and yeah what what's uncertain about the research as well yeah yeah and that's very, and again that's very unbiased it's evidence-based it's it's research-based information so that's a really good one to go to yes dr rachel reed is amazing yes so i really recommend her good. as well that's yeah. quite a good um, resource to have as well. And yeah. I think ultimately, and I'll say this, and I think you'll agree with me, Erin, is that when you look at the findings of induction of labour, so whether you induce before your 42 week or you induce that 42 week exactly, change outcomes, does it? Because if someone's, if a baby is going to be born and stillborn, regardless of whether you have that induction or not, that's what the research shows. And the sad mm. fact is, is that we may not, we, I don't think it's spoken about enough because it's such a hard-hitting fact about someone mm. losing their baby. Mm. Um, but if someone told you that it wouldn't change your outcome regardless, it would be, it would probably be a much easier decision to make that, well, yeah. if it's not going to change my outcome, unless there's, of course, a pressing um, illness or condition in pregnancy, mm that requires the pregnancy to be ended, mm. then it's better, even if it's just taking a couple of days to think about it. And I think yeah. we need to start getting comfortable with being patient because I think as a society as well, we're very much instant, aren't we? It's like you put a poster, you want, you want, you want lights on it instantly. Or if you yeah. um, order something off, uh, off Amazon, you want it that same day. Mm. And I think mm. as a society as well, we've lost that essence of being patient or just waiting yes taking a step back and thinking is this the right decision for me and and, and that's the thing i mean you've been pregnant for nine months and i you know and i know and i know that people sometimes they they ask for an induction because they're just fed up waiting mm. and you know um, genuinely you should the only time you should be inducing labor is for a medical reason because and i think the people that ask for inductions because they're just fed up being pregnant they they, they obviously don't understand the risks that they're taking asking for that induction mm -hmm. and 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 i think it's irresponsible as healthcare providers to not then explain those risks because nobody really should be having an induction unless there is a medical indication mm -hmm. for having that induction um you know, I've heard, I've, I've heard, Kemi, Kemi shared something, an obstetrician told one of her clients that they, um, they have to induce babies post 42 weeks, otherwise they don't come out. 
That's like ridiculous, the most ridiculous thing to say. I mean, nobody has a 21-year-old in their uterus still. Of course, baby's going to be born at some point. They'll come when they're ready. Um, you know, it, it, we, we, we really need to learn to be patient um, and, and, and trust, trust our bodies and trust our babies. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I had a very similar experience to you by the sounds of it. My first was I, I had an induction. Um, and the reason the midwife gave me for booking the induction in was because it was quiet. They had beds. And that's not a, that's not <laughs> a, a medical reason for it. I know. Yeah, yeah, I know. This was this was almost ten years ago, but um, uh, <laughs> that probably isn't going to happen now. But um, that's not a medical reason for an induction. And she didn't explain the risks to me. She didn't even explain to me really um, what was going to happen or the different stages that could happen. And if she did, she didn't do a, a, a good enough job because I don't remember what she said to me, and it didn't stick in my mind. And if she had have explained it properly. A, I wouldn't have gone for the induction and B, I would remember what she said to me mm. because it is so shocking, to be honest, and eye-opening when you hear actually what is involved. There's a whole section of induction that I've added to my course now and I go through every single different stage of induction that could be offered to you and I explain the risks and I explain the benefits and I explain the impact that that can have. Um, and literally every client that I explain the stages to in an unbiased way, it's mm. very fact-based, but their faces, they're like, oh, God, that no, I had no idea. Yeah, I had no idea that's what was involved. Um, so if, if, if I don't remember it, I'm going to guarantee it wasn't, it wasn't explained to me in that way. And I went into, um, into hospital. Um, I, I had sweeps. I had um, artificial rupture of membranes. I had, I had an epidural because it was, it was it painful. Hurt. It, it hurt. does hurt. Um, I had the artificial oxytocin um, and the inevitable happened. My daughter got distressed. Labour was really long. Um, I had an episiotomy. Um, I they, had, they literally had the forceps out in their hands ready to use them. And I saw them and went, no. And no. I pushed really, really hard and she came out. But same thing. I couldn't get her to latch. I couldn't breastfeed afterwards. I had a year of postnatal depression, which was horrific. And I, I attribute all of that to having no coping techniques. I didn't do hypnobirthing and I didn't, I didn't, and, and lack of knowledge. I didn't know what mm. was involved and I didn't know the risks. So educating yourself is really, really important um, because a lot of the time that trauma is preventable. It's understanding that I think it's like when you, if I'm not wrong, you've done your hypnobirth training with the birth surprising, right? Mm -hmm. Me too. So yep. when you do your hypnobirthing training, you will always drilled into you that you never make it about. And I always say, because I, you know, like when you hear people things up too, like something out. Um, you always hear people say things like a birth plan is pretty useless, or it's you know. Mm. But it's, I think when you think about birth plan and how I guess it's been it's been portrayed in a traditional sense where you plan this is what I want to do. Um, it's actually having a preparation or like a wish list for different you know, different stages. And I think for that reason, when you actually look at if you look at your main preferences for your main sort of what you want to really, really help in your green birth and you actually look at translating to different scenarios, you can still find that a lot of your choices will go through and translate into so it's not about yeah. unmedicated birth because in the 50s 
is that for me when it's going to go back? Yeah, I think it's difficult to hear you. The connection's a bit dodgy. I can hear you, but it's not, it's a bit crackly. No, I think it might be your headphones. It, a little bit, it might be your headphones. I can't hear you at all now. I haven't. No. Gone. So oh, oh no, can you hear me now? That's better. Yeah. Can hear you now. Better. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, much better. So, um, I've lost my train of thought there. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, you were talking about birth plans. Yeah. Birth plans. So, I think um, understanding what your options are when it comes to giving birth, whether that's um, an abdominal birth, whether it's you're, you're planning for a vaginal birth. It doesn't matter at all because if you understand that you can tailor it to be your own birth experience, that in itself will change your whole perspective of your birth options and how you view birth. And I know that for within hypnobirth, we do say that you're not avoiding a a medical birth or, you know, if you need assistance, it's absolutely fine. But if you know, you know, for all the steps that got you to the the particular birth that you had, you will be aware of everything and you'll be aware and having you would have been a part of the decision making process to have got you there because you understand that this is what's happened but it's also for me and I I do say this because I I think a lot of us don't realize because I was I explained you know how um I don't know whether you've um come across things like um optimal birth or Mm -hmm. biomechanics for birth so spinning yep, baby forces, yeah. yeah, perfect, yeah, mm-hmm. perfect. So even things like preparing your body ready for birth in terms of, I think we don't realise how um, sedentary our lifestyles are and, you know, actually yeah. looking into that aspect of being having a more active pregnancy, um, preparing your body in terms of strength building because mm-hmm. labour is an endurance. So regardless of what kind of labour you have, whether it's induced or physiological, um, you need to be prepared physically and mentally, and a lot of a lot of people don't realise how important that aspect of that physical prep yeah. also is. It's not just about um, knowing inductions, not in no induction, um, but it's all about trying to myth break. And that sometimes it can be overwhelming how much you need. You you know, re- people should be able to access, and it's mm-hmm. so hard to keep up. But I think that factored in with I think hypnobirthing covers it all though doesn't it 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 does Uh, and this is this is the thing that I think is is frustrating when when people don't prepare um because sorry my sister my my daughter's like sending me tons of text messages (laughs) I'm trying to swipe them away um because because there is such there is such a lot of information that is important to know when it comes to birth um that if you don't prepare you are not giving yourself the best chance of having that 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 positive mm-hmm. experience because there is a lot within your control, like understanding how to how to get baby into the best position. You know, like the biomechanics yeah. of birth course that I did, that I did. It sounds like you you, you might have done it as well. Um, understanding 
you know, the, the pelvis and the alignment of the pelvis and the alignment of baby and making sure that that is optimised as much as possible is going to potentially prevent your labour stalling and needing augmenting with artificial oxytocin, for example. You know, knowing birth positions, understanding how birth works, understanding mm. the hormones that your brain produces to facilitate birth and understanding how to promote those so that you don't need to be induced or you don't need your labor augmented. All of these things, if you don't know how to do those things, you are increasing the risk of a medicalized birth because you don't know how birth works. And we don't get taught that. No. You know, we don't get taught how, how birth works. We get taught at school how to not get pregnant, how to put a condom on, how to not catch an STD and what they are. And then we probably get shown a horrific birth video which is intentionally designed to, to terrify us so we don't get pregnant. We don't get taught actually what happens when you go into labour and how to facilitate birth. So it, that's why it's so important that, that the fact that people do prepare themselves and educate themselves as much as possible, because otherwise you are leaving yourself open to a medicalised route that, yes, sometimes may be in your best interest, but for the vast majority of people isn't. And that can lead to in the increased chances of postnatal depression, birth trauma, mm -hmm. physical lasting long-term damage to your body and potentially your baby because you didn't understand that you could say no to something, you know? So the, the education piece is really, really important. And when you have these options to, uh, presented to you, things like induction, a lot of people would also say that, well, you make it sound like as if, you know my doctors haven't got my best interest at heart but the thing is is it's not the fact that they're personally um you know like um going after you as a as an individual but the thing is is the way that they're also taught to look at birth is to look for pathology they're looking for yes. things that go wrong they're always risk mm -hmm. ana analyzing as well because it's what they're taught to do so when yeah. you then have someone who says oh no you know babies need to come out because they, they they aren't it's almost like as if that's basically their thought process that mm. labor won't happen because labor fails and, and birth is one of those things that always goes wrong or it needs medical assistance to then mm -hmm. you know get onto the right track and i think yeah. that in itself there's someone somewhere profiting i would say that you know when we start talking about how yeah. birth is political birth is mm -hmm. um you know when we look at privatized medical care because a lot of people think that when you go private with maternity services that you will have a better experience but actually yeah. that's not the case unless right. you've got private antenatally and sort education to make mm -hmm. yourself prepared for entering that institution mm -hmm. um an actual private hospital for birth is completely different as well because there you're paying for the intervention so everything mm -hmm. that you have the more you have the more profitable and it's almost yeah. like how the nhs is headed that the more mm -hmm. um the hospitals buy this equipment to then um do these interventions the more budget the hospital gets because they are using the money that's been allocated to them mm -hmm. which then means that the private companies making these you know this equipment then profit and if you look right back to sort of where the sources of these medical equipment is i'm sure it's some government body that's lining mm -hmm. you know having their like pockets lined because yeah. it is political yeah it's, it's all about money and and your point about private health healthcare is really important because i mean we only have to look at the us yeah. and see the state of maternity care in the us and how medicalized it is and it, it's all incentivized um but it's all based on money 
mm. you know the, the c-section rate is is really high because the, the hospitals make more money if you have a c-section um it's all obstetric led you know midwives are, are not you know, we're very lucky over here that you see a midwife and generally your birth is facilitated mm. by a midwife because that's not the case in the u.s mm. um and even if you go private in the uk the bias that the obstetricians have is going to be exactly the same in a in a private hospital um, compared to an NH hospital because obstetricians are there to support higher risk births. Mm-hmm. That's what they're there for. So they are going to have a much more of a bias towards a medicalized birth because that is the kind of birth that they see. They don't see physiological hands off births because that's not their job. That's not mm-hmm. what they're there to to support. They're there to support births that need an obstetrician and because they're higher risk. And even the midwives who work in the NHS, you know, I'm teaching a midwife at the minute, hypnobirthing course, um, and I speak to lots of other midwives, and you can probably confirm this, but actually working in a hospital, you don't see true hands-off physiological births very often because you're in a hospital setting. You know, she, she, the midwife I'm teaching at the minute, she said, I, you know, I kind of said to her, am I teaching you to suck eggs here? Because you're a midwife, yeah. you see this day in, day out, and you know all of this stuff. And she said, no, it's really good to get a reminder because I don't see this very often. You forget because you you do, don't, you're not you doing it day in, day out. Yeah, You definitely do. You, you almost become a bit desensitised to it because, and this is what happened to me, is that I worked on labour board for a couple of years, um, found out I was pregnant having my son, mm. and then I moved to community, but then in that eight months that I had before I sort of left for maternity, I kind of was just trying to just keep my head above water at work and just sort of learn the new way of doing things in community. And then when I went back, it was all completely different and I'd left the hostel behind. But I remember, um, do you remember a few, I think a couple of months ago, Kemi had posted about how many physiological normal, like a birth placenta have you seen in the, in your, um, yeah, in your unit mm-hmm. hand on heart and apart from a home bath not seen them even yes, during training shocking. Even- um you know it's 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 a vicious circle um and that and that's why parents need to educate themselves and understand this stuff because the, the odds are stacked against you mm. really um, to have that hands-off physiological birth and there are definite health benefits for you and baby to have that that physiological birth um as long as uh, uh, you know taking into individual risk factors and, and, and medical conditions of course but you know if you're low risk uh, i'd actually argue even if you were high risk because let's let's face it the majority of people um are going to fit into a high risk category because they are not white or because their BMI is over a certain um, uh, certain point, or they are over 35, which is like a huge percentage of people that are, are pregnant are going to have some kind of risk factor. So, um, yeah, it's it's important important to understand how to facilitate that physiological birth because most people are not classed as low risk. Um, no. And even, for example, um, when you look at the, the, the birthplace statistics and looking at home birth as an option, there is research to say that even high risk people um, fare better with a home birth. Um, yeah. There's actually lower risk for them in, uh, when they have a home birth. 
Um, and they, they are actively discouraged from that because they are classed as high risk because of their BMI or their age or so on. Oh, hello. Hi, Mum. I'm on the call at a minute. <laughs> Sorry, my son's just giving me a dive. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think Papa wants to be on the, on the, on the live stream, darling. Why? Because I'm, I'm talking to lots of people at the minute. I can't come back in a minute, okay? And go talk to Papa. Sorry, it's, it's FaceTime, my mum. <laughs> I love it. The, the, the things that they, they bring up. I once had my, my son bashing my head with a toy hammer. For the <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, don't worry at all. The, the, the interesting thing is, um, for me, where I live and where I work, there is a really solid home birth team base. And um, they, have, they have some really, really good um, in, like, stats. You know how they produce their own stats at the end of them every month? But even then, if I'm not wrong, the stats they, that they produce is that half, I think there was 23 home births in a month, just gone, um, which would have been October or September. And um, I think 11 or 12 out of them had an active management of third stage. Mm -hmm. And that's also something that is quite a complicated, but you know, why we, why we, not waiting long enough even sometimes I don't know when we say you know we wait for the hour it's obviously take, going to take a little bit longer we need mm. to get the birth the skin to skin um with baby and trying to get the most of the, the hormones flowing mm. and I know in some situations truly you you need that shot of the synthetic yeah. oxytocin and that's fine mm. but mm. I almost feel like and I do hear it where women say that they were almost primed from the moment they went into labor and sort of during their care in labor it was almost like oh so would you like the injection and mm -hmm. i know for a fact that i've done it too because it's kind of how we were taught it's almost like a um efficiency thing you know like it's like a tick box mm -hmm. okay she's consented for centimetrin um, or centosin mm -hmm. on whatever she decides to have or whatever's suitable for her and you tick box it and then you move on to the next part of the prep um, for getting her ready for once babies arrived mm. and I, I, it just the, what the awareness is really and I think for me I'm going to try and, try and pump out some more posts about it because I think yeah. that's another part that links in with things like this need to depression because uh, once you have that synthetic this is another thing that I think is really important and again it's important why we research things because um, where after you've given birth you're not necessarily aware of what's going on down that end and your birth partner needs to be aware of what your preferences are and why you're asking for optimal core clamping and why you're asking for a physiological third stage yeah. because I know from my, my, my third birth, my home birth, I had a physiological third stage um, and um, I, I, I was so distracted. Midwives actually did control cord traction on me, despite mm -hmm. me having a physiological third stage and that shouldn't have happened. Um, and, you know, when you're, when you're full of those birth hormones and you're um, distracted by the baby, if you haven't got a birth partner who is clued up and understands what your preferences are and why you said something, mm -hmm. um, they're not going to be on the ball to kind of stop these kind of things happening. And that, again, that can, you know, controlled cord traction is something that I've posted about in the past because it is something that you can opt out of. 
But a lot of people don't realise that they can still have an actively managed third stage, still have the artificial oxytocin and opt out of the controlled cord traction because, again, it has risks. Um, so, yeah, it just, it just, I think it just proves that the, 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 the education is, is really, really important around all of these interventions um, because they can... They, they can happen without you realizing i think in, in circumstances they should it shouldn't but in reality it can do no absolutely shall we call it a day today yeah i think i think he's had think enough he's, he's, he needs my attention now i think no absolutely <laughs> i think we've had a really good chat we've covered quite a lot of ground which i didn't yes. even think we would um but it's been absolutely amazing talking to you you have so you much too. knowledge and oh, thank you. I'm, so, I'm so pleased we got to do this and um for everyone watching um i think someone has asked that you know the resources that we talked about yeah. mm -hmm. um in person antenatal classes recently restarted near me the message to my class was that we should take all or all take the active management because it reduces the risk of uph i have to say victoria if your class was offered by your hospital and by the trust that you're going to be birthing with um, the likelihood is is they're probably preparing you to go into yeah. the hospital to do what is efficient for them. So it doesn't reduce the risk. Um, having a physiological third stage um, isn't putting you at risk for postpartum hemorrhage because then it's kind of thinking about, well, if my body has birthed my baby, it's going to birth my placenta. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really important to understand all the options, what the time limits are, and even if you wanted to, if you, for example, through halfway through doing physiological um, third stage, you decided at that point there was anything that changed that put you more at risk yeah. of having um, a postpartum hemorrhage, you would always have the option of having um, the drugs um, on, you know, within the room. So the midwives would be able to administer them to minimise the, you know, minimise a postpartum hemorrhage from happening. But it definitely doesn't increase your chances of having a postpartum hemorrhage because your body knows what it's doing and if it's just allowed that time and that um space to be able to do it because remember as soon as baby's born the first thing that will happen is all the lights come on um people start coming into the room you know getting things and then you know let me take baby from you let's weigh baby let's do this let's do that and actually maintaining that birth environment of the the dim the dim lights optimizing hormone levels it doesn't it doesn't all finish just because baby's born it should be even more so important because you're trying to establish that connection with baby and increase the hormone levels for both feeding, bonding, but also giving birth to your placenta. So don't think that that's your only option. And if you want more information, um, I'm sure Erin's got loads on her page, but I'll try and see if I can get some um, pushed out today about yeah. physiological third stage because I think it's definitely something that is a bit of a blurred topic at the moment yeah and I'll, I'll post a link i'll post it I'll, I'll do a post later on today um referencing all of those websites yes, and other instagram accounts and resources that we mentioned so that um anybody who wants to find those can find them easily brilliant thank you so much for your time today Evan. thank you lovely chatting with you you too and everyone who's joined us and hopefully we'll get a chance to do this again soon yeah definitely we should do we should make it like a regular thing <laughs> definitely yeah. thank you so much right. have a lovely rest okay. of the day and i'll speak to you soon you too okay, okay. bye bye
The Better Birth podcast and all of its content is for educational and informational purposes only. You should consult your midwife or your doctor for anything in relation to your own pregnancy and birth. The opinions and the views of the guests on the Better Birth podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Better Birth or Erin Fung.